All right, y'all ready to kick off today? All right, that's a pretty good response. Uh, hey, let's kick this off with a quote from Winston Churchill. He said this, It's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. In other words, it's not enough just to be alive. If you're not living for something, if you're not living with a purpose, that, that's, not, that's not enough if you're not living with that. Uh, a guy by the name of Tom Peters uh, in his book, Reimagine, Business Excellence in a Disruptive Age, uh, he says this, the punchline to my story, the story of why this book is a tombstone for me. He said, this is a tombstone that bears the epitaph I hope to avoid. He said this would be it, I hope to avoid. Thomas J. Peters, 1942 to whenever, he would have done some really good, cool stuff, but his boss wouldn't let him. He said, I hope to avoid that. He said, don't give me that one. On the other hand, he says, I know exactly what I want my tombstone to read. I want it to read Thomas J. Peters, 1942 to whenever. He was a player. He said, I don't want it to read he got rich, he became famous, he got things right. Rather, he was a player. In other words, he did not sit on the sidelines and watch life go by. And he, he said this, he said, agree or disagree with me on anything else. But if you have a grain of integrity or spirit or spunk or verve or whatever, you must agree on this, and this is one of your right hands. It's this, getting off the sidelines, being a player is not optional. It's not optional. You've got to get in the game. You've got to get off the sidelines. We have been so guilty. The church has become professional huddlers. We're really good at huddling. Hey, let's get together. What, what we're going to do next? What we, the problem is we never break huddle. We never break huddle and go run any plays. And we've got to get out of that. And that's what this series has been about, a wake-up call for you, to, you and I to do something. Get off the sidelines and get out. See, Jesus didn't die a horrific death. Take the punishment so that you and I could just get a get-out-of-hell-free card. I mean, that's great. But that wasn't his only reason for, for, for going through all that he did. I've said this a hundred times, but you need to truly grasp this reality. You were created with a purpose, for a purpose, on purpose. Contrary to what somebody else may have told you, you are not an accident. Your life isn't the result of some randomness or coincidence. You didn't just so happen in 2020 to be living in Mex County, Ray County, Rome County, or whatever. You didn't just by coincidence have that job, be going to that school you're at, be doing this. No, there is a purpose for why you're at it. I believe that, you know, uh, even, even though... Um, uh, Drake's time there in American Idol didn't go as far. I believe there was purpose behind that. I believe there's purpose in everything we do. We've got to look for that purpose. Now, we have been in Ephesians 5, and our main verse has been 514. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Today, I want to dig deeper into that whole passage, starting with verse 10. I want to read verses 10 through 13 from the message because I think it nails it. Uh, check this out. Figure out what will please Christ. 
then do it. Let, let's stop there. If we just did that, come on. Figure out what pleased Christ and then do it. Our world would be much different. Our marriages would be much different. Racial tension would be much different. Come on. Our relationships would be much different if we just figured out what pleased Christ and began to do that. And he continues, don't waste your time on useless work. Mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness, expose these things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things that they've got to do in the dark so nobody will see it. Did y'all get that? Let's, let's read that again. It's a scandal when people waste their lives doing things in the dark so nobody will see it. And he says, rip the cover off those frauds See how attractive they actually look in the light of Christ. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. Let's just read that, that wake up part all together. Say it. Wake up, right? My bad. I, 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 threw, I just said if y'all were paying attention. You got to say it with some fervor. Ready? Wake up, sleeper. Now, for the past four weeks, uh, we're in week five. I've given you a wake-up call. Today, this is what happens when Kelly is forced to stay at home. Uh, You get three today. You get three wake-up calls. Three wake-up calls. And these, I don't think they're going to be mind-blowing where you thought, oh, wow. But I think the church has fallen asleep in some areas that we need to wake up to. If you're taking notes, wake-up call number one today is this. Wake up to the goodness and the greatness of God. Wake up to the goodness of God. I believe we've fallen asleep to that. We'll sing, we'll sing the songs, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able. What's it say? I will sing of the goodness. That's great. Sounds great. But do we live our lives Awake to the goodness of God in our lives. Even when things aren't going the way we want them to go. Even when we don't get the report from the doctor we want. Even when our teams uh, lose. Uh, Even when when we have a, a, a fight with our spouse. Do we really see how good God is? That he's just not good when things are going great. He's good. The goodness of God, and this is, and we need to wake up to the greatness of God. Again, we'll sing this song. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. What? And all will see how great. How great is our God. All will will see. I I think if we're honest, about 70% of the church can't even see the greatness of God. Because we've fallen asleep. God is great. God is great. I I tell you, here's what A.W. Tozer said. He said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. I'm a firm believer in in, in your, your worship reflects how big you think God is. I'm a firm believer in that because if we thought, man, God is this great God, I don't think Bob or or Jill or or Casey would have to get up here and prompt you into entering in. You'd be like, man, God is so great. 
He's been so good to me this week. I can't wait to just lift my hands and worship. We need to wake up to the goodness and the greatness of God. The second thing we've got to wake up to. Wake up to the truth about who God says you are and your potential. See, I know we we preach this. Hey, own your mistakes, own your failures, own those things that bring you. Yeah, yeah, and and I firmly believe that you've got to own those things to get past them. I I believe that. I I believe we need to to understand this, this truth here. Listen, that that, that we are, everyone, we've got to be aware of our own capability to fall into sin. Are you hearing me? That we are all capable of all kinds of sin. Every person in this room, we are capable of that. I know that. But the wake-up call I'm talking about is to wake up to not who the world says or thinks you are, not even to who you think or say you are, but to who God says you are. Who God says you are. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. we got to wake up to who he says about. See, the world will label you with different things. And here's the problem. When, when, when you're being called something over and over and told you're something over and over, you start to believe that about yourself. You start believing it. And, and, and so the world will label you as unlovable. But you look at the Bible, Romans 8, 38, 39, says you're loved. The world will label you as scarred or damaged goods, but God says, no, you're healed. The world will label you as weak, but God says through him you are strong. The world will label you as abandoned and wanted, but God says, huh, I came searching for you. That's how much I want you. The world will label you as broken, but God says you're completing him. The world will say you're rejected, but God says I've redeemed you and called you. Listen, that's good preaching right there. And it's at any time, you're more than welcome to jump in. Or this is going to be a long day. The world, thank you. The world will label you as alone. You're all alone. But God says this in Joshua 1, 9. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The world will label you as hopeless. Might as well just give up on ever changing. But God says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for a future and a hope. The world says you've blown it, you've failed. But God says you are victorious through him. The world says you're nothing special. But again, God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. The world says you're worthless. But God says, hey, look at John 3, 16. You are definitely worth it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. Wake up to the truth about who God says you are, your potential. I love the way the Passion paraphrases Ephesians 3.20. Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. In other words, the things you think you can't, God says, I'll do them through you. I'll do them through you. Wake up to your potential. But Kelly, you don't know me. You don't know my failings. You don't know how weak I feel, where I'm at. Man, I'm not strong in the faith like you or like others. That's what I love about Paul. Paul in in 2 Corinthians 12 said this. He said, hey, I'm going to boast more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's 
power may rest on, on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. I'm strong in him. Wake up to who God says you are and your potential. Third wake-up call. Wake up to the opportunity of this moment we're in. You see, I'm not willing to call 2020 a wash. I've heard it said, well, you know, let's just... Let's just get through 2020, and then 21 will be better. Then we'll start all over. I just, I, I'm just under the belief that the pandemic, that all this stuff didn't catch God off guard. I, I believe God was using it as an opportunity for the church to step up and shine in different areas. But the problem is the church fell asleep along with the rest of the world and hibernated. And I believe we've got to wake up to the opportunity of this moment. I love the way Henry Blackaby said, we just actually finished this a few weeks ago on Wednesday night, Experiencing God. He says this, if you feel weak, limited, or ordinary, you are the best material through which God can work. Anybody feel that? Weak, limited, ordinary. Good news. That's who God loves to use. And we've got to wake up that God has placed us here. There's an opportunity that we've got to wake up for. We've got to wake up. Wake up, a sleeper. Rise from the dead. Uh, that's verse 14. Look at 15 through 17. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Anybody think the days are evil? Make the most of every opportunity. The message says make the most every chance you get because these are desperate times. And they are. They are desperate times. And then he says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. There it is again. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Do it. Do it. My prayer, guys, is that during this time, we would make the most out of every opportunity to love people, to serve people, to be salt and light in a dying, dark world. We would make the most. It's strange to me that we will make the most out of every opportunity to defend our political stance, to, to defend our viewpoints on people's social pages that we don't even know. It just come up and we're like, I don't like that. I'm going to write this. And we'll make the most out of every opportunity to do that. That's why you should be fasting this social media fast. Hey, listen, listen. You're responsible for you, not anybody else. I want to encourage you, next three days, get off of it. Get off of it. If that's the social, only social life you have, you really need to get off of it. <laughs> but I, here, here's why. Not because social media is a bad thing, but because it makes, listen, use that time to get closer to God. But, but here's what I'm, it, it, we'll make the, most of all those opportunities, but we don't make the most of every opportunity we have to love people, to serve people, to minister to people. Let me make, I'm going to go a step forward. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
Don't lay your identity down as a follower of Jesus for a candidate or a certain position on something. Are you hearing me? Your identity, uh, this may not be popular, but I don't care. Your identity as a follower of Jesus is way more valuable than your identity as a Democrat or a Republican. And, and if when you hear something about the other side that you, and, and you start getting angry inside, I think you may need to check your relationship. Because we're to love God and to love people. Love I, we were, I don't even remember what the conversation, how we got there this past week, but we're sitting around the table, uh, Denise, Bo, Sheridan, and, and, and she's talking about somebody that, had, I said, listen, here's all I know. I, their stance, do I agree with this stance? Here's all I know. I've said this a thousand times. You have never locked eyes with someone that does not matter to the heart of God. Whether they believe like you or not, they matter to the heart of God. Whether they live a lifestyle you disagree with, they matter to the heart of God. Whether they're going and doing things you don't agree with, they matter to the heart of God. And that's what we've got to keep our eyes on. And I'm seeing a, anything but that now on social media. And we wonder why the world looks at the church as a bunch of hypocrites. Because we're not even loving each other. Come on now. Kelly, you should have stayed home with your wife. So, <laughs> make the most of, of every opportunity we have. Because these are desperate times and the days are evil. That word time. He says make, make, make the most of these times. See, the ancient Greeks, they would category time in two different things. One of them is this, chronos. It's also, you can spell it with a K also, but chronos. What it's referring to is chronological time. In other words, the way we tell time, uh, hours, minutes, uh, days, uh, months, years. That, that's what it is. The problem with that is, is God uh, exists outside the space of every dimension of time that he created. So you can't put God on a calendar. You can't put him in a box. You can't put him on a time schedule. And so they've got this other thing they refer to time, kairos. Kairos is referring to something much deeper, more meaningful. It's actually measured in moments. Moments, the actual definition is that, a proper or opportune time for action. That moment that hits you and you've got an opportunity to do something, to make a difference. The opportunity of a lifetime. Have I heard that? Kairos moment. Let me give you an example of a Kairos moment in the Bible. Uh, remember the story of Esther? If you don't know the story of Esther, I'm about to give you the cliff notes of her story. King Xerxes, yes, it was same King Xerxes as 300 if you watch the movie. Uh, King Xerxes, he has this massive party where he's showing off everything. They are getting, I, I mean, it goes for days. Read it. They get drunk. Uh, I, I mean, he gets so drunk that he does something no man should do. And he calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, and says, tell her to come out and parade around in front of my friends with nothing on but a crown. Yeah, how you're thinking that went over? That's exactly how it went over. She said, no, thank you. And so she, he, he says, okay, then I'm done with you. And then they go on this search for, for him a new wife. 
they, 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 go, they get 400 women, young girls, bring them in, and this competition goes into play for who would be his wife. Well, Esther, this young Jewish girl, gets put in the mix. They don't even know she's Jewish. She gets put in the mix, and, and out of 400 women, gets favor, becomes uh, King Xerxes' wife. Well, enter the bad guy. Because every story's got to have a bad guy. You got Haman. Haman comes in. He talks to King Xerxes. And, and he talks him into issuing this degree, their decree that on a certain day, all Jews, young, old women, children, men, would be killed and destroyed. Remember, Xerxes doesn't know that Esther's a Jew. So he says, yeah, let's go with it. Well, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, who pretty much raised Esther, he gets word of it. He comes to Esther and says, this is going on. You've got to go before the king, your husband, and, and call this thing off. And she says, listen, if I go in without him calling for me, it can mean my life. And then Mordecai says this to her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, if you don't live in your Kairos moment, the moment right now where Jews will be saved by somebody else, but you and your family, they'll die. And then he says this, and who knows, Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows, Esther? This is your Kairos moment. This is why God placed you where he placed you. What does that have to do with me? Maybe God placed you in that job for a reason. Maybe he placed you in that community because for a Kairos moment. Maybe he placed you with that ball team. Maybe he placed you in a situation because he's trying to show you a Kairos moment and let you get and jump into that moment. I'm telling you, I believe that God is trying to to, to, to set into place so many Kairos moments that we're missing. A couple of ways that God sets up these moments. One is this, a desperate situation that has to change. Something that you run into like something, okay, I don't have a choice. Something's got to change. You know, in, in all my years, I'm 52 years old, grew up in church. Uh, I've been to a lot of testimony services. I've never once heard somebody give this testimony about coming to Christ. Hey, uh, PK, let me just tell you about my, me coming to Christ. Things were going so good. My marriage was just hitting on all cylinders. Good Lord, it was like, man, we were on a honeymoon. Every, it was just awesome. My kids weren't doing stupid things. They were making good grades. In fact, they were buying us lunch when we went out. I didn't have to pay for their meal. Uh, they, they were cleaning up their room. And my job, I was getting promotion after promotion. I had all these great cars. Man, I had a 401k that was just saved up. And then I decided, you know what? How would my life get better? I'm going to come to Jesus. Not one time have I ever heard most of the time it starts off with, PK, my life was a disaster. My marriage was in shambles. My kids, I was having to find them and keep them from stealing stuff to support their habit. I didn't stand on my rope. And I thought, God, surely you can do something with this because I failed miserably with my life. So here I give it to you. 
What does that mean? That's when you get to a desperate situation where you say something has got to change. Because here's the truth. Some, a lot of times we don't change because we see the light. A lot of times the only reason we change is because we feel the heat. We feel the heat. It's got to change or else. It's got to change or else. See, see, when we change when the pain of those things, of things staying the same becomes greater than the fear of what we might lose. Let that sink in. We change when the pain of things staying the same becomes greater than the fear of what we might lose. The Bible is full of examples of this. David, when he come out there and Goliath is out there, the pain of things staying the same and hearing this giant come out there every day and ridicule his God, the pain of that was greater than the fear of it may cost him his life if he steps out on the battlefield. What about Nehemiah? The pain of things staying the same, the walls of the city staying destroyed and demolished. The pain of things staying the same was greater than the fear of what might happen to him if he continued work, knowing they were out to kill him. What about Moses? The pain of seeing his people oppressed, beaten, misused, it became greater than the fear of his people staying the same way. It became greater than his uh, speaking uh, ability, his speech impediment. I'm telling you, God, he'll use it. He'll put you in a situation that you've got to change. And that's a Kairos moment. The second way, the second thing God will use to set up a Kairos moment, this is going to be mind-blowing, so I hope you write this down. It's going to be great. I can feel Leslie's ready for it. I can see it on her face. She's ready. The second thing God will use to set up a Kairos moment is a man or a woman. Right now, which one you are, man, woman, God, whichever one. God loves using ordinary people, people like you, people like me. You've heard me and Denise talk about this. We try to figure out, God, why would you want us to go pastor? And we're like, okay, the only reason we can figure out is because when you do something up there like he's been doing over the past eight years, there is no way Kelly and Denise can take credit for it. People are going to say, only God, only God. God loves you. He specializes in using people, broken people, jacked up people, people that have messed up more than once, people from different ethnicities, people from different backgrounds and and, and upbringing. Here's the thing we've got to understand. God is not concerned with your ability. He's after your availability. God's not saying, hey, what can you do for me? All he's saying is, are you available? Are you available? Because that's what I'm looking for. I, I want to show you some of, this, two of the saddest scriptures in the Bible, I think. It, found in Ezekiel 22:30 is one of them. God says, I look for someone among them who would build up a wall, who would stand in the gap on behalf of the land that, so that I wouldn't destroy it, but I found no one. I look for a man, look for a woman, anybody. Then say, hey, I look for someone who had the talents, who was a great teacher, who was a great motivator. I look for anyone, just someone that would make themselves available. 
I found no one. The second saddest, I think, is Isaiah 59, 15 to 16. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. Get this. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in. He looked for someone, a man, a woman, not someone with great abilities, just someone who make, would make themselves available. It says he found no one. I believe God is calling us, guys, to wake up to our Kairos moment. I, I, this moment in history we, we're in, I don't want to look back at 2020 and just be like, whew, I'm glad we got through that. I want to look back at 2020 and say, look what we did with everything going on. God still moved. God still showed up. God still worked miracles. I'm telling you, maybe God is trying to set you up for your cowardice moments. But don't we love to give excuses for why we can't? Come on. One, one of my favorite excuses, this is not in my notes, one of my favorite excuses Christians use is, let me pray about that. When you get that, you know good and well. They ain't praying about it. The answer's no. Don't expect them to show up. Well, let me, I'll tell you what. Let me pray about it. No, how about you be honest? <laughs> well, they got quiet. <laughs> we love giving excuses. We, we love giving reasons why we can't be used by God. Let me give you some of my favorites why we can't be used by God or why, why we're not. Here's one of them. I'm not smart enough, and I don't have the education. Example A, right here. This may be off-putting for some of you. You're looking at a GED guy. No high school diploma hanging on my office wall. GED guy. Anything I know from the Bible, I work for it. I have to get in and study. I'm not just naturally. My, my brother Casey is naturally a studier. He's naturally smart. He loves digging in. Me, I have to work. I have to make myself. So that, that excuse is out the window that, that you're not smart enough or have the education. You look at Peter, a fisherman, and he cuts off a guy's ear. He denies Jesus three times. He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. You look at James and John, again, fishermen. Uh, the, the, these brothers were referred to as the sons of thunder because they had anger issues. The, these are people Jesus chose. Uh, oh, oh, another fun fact about James and John. They got their mom to go to Jesus on their behalf to try to talk Jesus into letting them sit beside him when, they got, when Jesus came to his throne. Talking about a mama's boys. The, oh, let's go. Andrew, Peter's brother, nothing special about him, no education. Kelly, how do you know they didn't have, have any education? Because they were fishermen. And what that show, tells you when you know the Bible is that they reached a certain age where they said, hey, guys, you know what? You don't have what it takes to continue with education. Go back to your family business and work. You don't have what it takes to become a rabbi. You don't have what it takes to become a teacher. Go back and do what you can do, fish. These guys, so when you say I don't have the education, guys, half of who God, Jesus picked himself had no education really. So uh, the second excuse I love, 
I'm too young or I'm too old. I love that one. You're too young. Anybody heard of Josiah in the Bible? This kid was eight years old when he first became king. Eight years old. At 16, he fell in love with God. At 20 years of age, he set out and, and had one of the greatest revivals the country had ever seen. I mean, turning things around. Uh, you look at David. David was a teenager when he took out Goliath. Teenager. What about old? Moses was 80 years old when he first started leading the, the, uh, the people out of Egypt. 80 years old. And then he went another 40 years. That's a terrible retirement plan. So, what about... He didn't get to go in. So here we go. That's another story. Joshua. I love this. 85 years old. They're getting ready to go in. They're divvying up the land, the promised land. And they're like, hey, Joshua, man, you 85 years old. You've worked for it. Let us young bucks go in, and we'll take care of everything else. And Joshua says, hey, I'm as strong now at 85 years old as I was then. Let's go in. Give me my giant. You're never too young, and you're never too old to be used by God. Next, my past or my family history is too sketchy. Yeah, I'm just not going to make eye contact with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) My past, my family history is too sketchy. Really. Josiah, who we talked about a while ago, that led a revival at 20 years of age, became king at eight. This is what they said about his grandfather Manasseh. The Bible says this, he was the most wicked king to ever lead Israel. And it says this about his dad, that his dad followed in his grandfather's footsteps, meaning he was just as evil. See, here's what I love about Josiah. Josiah didn't allow his past or his family of origin to dictate what his future would be say about him I mean you read his story he knew he couldn't look at his dad he knew he couldn't look at his granddad so he found somebody that he could model his life about and he had somebody hey tell me about David tell me about what happened there I'm telling you guys truth is if you will lean into God he has the ability to cut ties with generational sins and curses that have dominated your family for years, if you'll lean into him. God has, I, I, I truly believe, God has the ability to establish a new lineage, a new heritage in your family, not one that's going to be determined by your mom's egg or your daddy's sperm, but one that is going to be determined by the power of an incorruptible seed of the word of God that is planted inside of you and begins to grow. Last one, I think. I'm not strong enough. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I'm just not strong enough. I think if you think that, that's actually a good place to start. I I, I love Eugene Peterson, the guy who paraphrased the the, the Bible with the message. He says this, A ruthless honesty will always leave us shattered by our inadequacy for God's work. But this is not about what you or I can do. 
it comes to it, yes, I'm inadequate. When it comes to it, I am not enough. When it comes to it, I don't have what it takes. But Christ living in me. I love, one of the things I love about Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he writes, he doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to people. I love the way he says this. See, if you find yourself in any of this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30, Paul says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best. Uh, not many of you are influential. Not many of you come from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks, the culture exploits and abuses? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies that make it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. I've never been so glad to be a nobody. And then he continues with this. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, a fresh start, it all comes from God by way of Christ. That's why we have to say, if you want to blow a horn, we'll blow a trumpet for God. I'm telling you guys, not one. How would you like for me to get up here and say that? Hey, I'm looking around this room. I don't see a lot of bright people. Don't see a lot of influential people. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would agree with that statement. Because I look in the mirror. I don't see, I, I have a, I, I mean, I'm constantly, God, why, why this? People smarter. People better. People that can do this much better than me. Why? Why? I, but, but he says, man, God loves using the nobodies. The nobodies. Let me give you an example of, of what Paul's talking about. Let me give you a quick inventory of the people God loves to use. Abraham, he's a liar. Jacob, a con man, a deceiver. Joseph, he's an ex-con. Moses was a murderer, a fugitive, who also struggled with a speech impediment. Joshua, he had his problems with jealousy. Rahab, she had a notorious sexual past. I, I, I'm talking Gideon, he was a coward. Samson, he was the poster child for impulsive uh, control disorder. Come on now. David, he was an adulterer involved in a conspiracy to commit murder. Elijah, prophet Elijah, he was bipolar. I mean, one minute he's outrunning a chariot, the next minute he's begging God to kill him. The disciples... There were times they didn't have a lot of faith. James and John, I, I said anger control issues. Thomas, he doubted. Martha, she was OCD over housekeeping and food preparation. And I'm not talking Martha Stewart. Guys, it's time we wake up and quit making excuses and get off the sidelines and get into the game. Get into the game. Wake up and do something. You were created with a purpose, for a purpose, on purpose. Philip Yancey, and I'm closing if I can get Bob to come on up. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he nailed it. And I love this quote. He says this, It is the very ordinariness of the disciples that gives me hope. Jesus does not seem to choose his followers on the basis of native talent 
or perfectibility or potential for greatness. When he lived on earth, he surrounded himself with ordinary people who misunderstood him, who failed to exercise much spiritual power, and sometimes they behaved like churlish school children. Denise is proofreading my, uh, my uh, power probers, and she's like, churlish? What is that? I said, it's a word. But she had to Google it to figure out what it meant. He says, they behave like that. He said, that's who people that followed him, the disciples. But then, the last part, I can't avoid the impression that Jesus prefers working with unpromising recruits. I can't avoid the impression that Jesus prefers working with unpromising recruits. See, when I look across this building at 11 a.m. to 9 a.m., the empty seats. And I know people are still working through some things. I don't see what other people see. I see an army. I see an army that if we were to wake up, we could change the communities we live in. I see an army that if we were to wake up, could have the marriages we so want, we so desire to have. We could have the relationship with our kids we so desire to have. I see people when I look out that if we were to wake up to our Kairos moments, that we would see God move in a mighty way through us. Tony, God presents Kairos moments at different times. And I love Sundays. I mean, I do. I texted Mace before I come out here for 9 a.m. I said, I, said I, I hate not having you here with me on Sundays. And she says, I hate it too. Kissy kiss. I would love to say it, say there's more to that text, but she's sick, so there wasn't. I love Sundays. I love the worship we do here. I love the experiences like we have. I love when God falls in this place. And I love to hear when you guys just break out in song and you're not worried about what it sounds like. You're just singing to God. I love those moments. Those are what we refer to mountaintop moments. God's moving. And the Spirit's moving. Things are going great. But if that's all we do, we're not living the purpose we were created for. Some of you may push back on this, but I'm here to tell you. We were not meant to live our lives on the mountain. We were meant to live, live our lives out in the valley. I'll show you that biblically. Do you remember, uh, do you remember what Jesus prayed over his disciples in John 17, 15, 18? Jesus was praying over his disciples, and he says, God, Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the valley. My prayer is that you would protect them in the valley. As you sent me into the world, into the valley, I'm sending them. See, the mountain is great. I love the mountaintop. I do. I, I love those experiences. That's where we get refreshed. It's where we get to fellowship with God and other believers. But our purpose is not to live on the mountain. The mountain is where we get a glimpse and experience of what life is like with God. But then we take that back down the mountain to where the broken people are. 
purpose is in the valley at your work, at the valley at your school, in your neighborhood. Come on, that's our, that's our purpose. Do you remember the story we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, found in Luke? Where Jesus takes, he invites Peter, James, and John to go up the mountainside with him. And they're up there, they're tired. But then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses, Moses show up, two icons in their faith. And, and they're seeing this uh, conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah take place. And then Mo, Peter being Peter, he just blurts out something. He's like, uh, uh, Lord, it is great for us to be here. Let us build these tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Two observations about that. Peter was putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Now, I have no doubt that Peter thought he was elevating Jesus' status because, as I said, Moses and Elijah were icons in their faith. So they're like, oh, let us do this. But the problem with that is Jesus wasn't just some good teacher. Jesus wasn't just some good man. Jesus wasn't some, just some awesome prophet. Jesus wasn't just one of many ways to God. He is the only way to God, and there is no one like him. <laughs> A second observation I made about is this. He's talking about building these tabernacles, but he's talking about building them up on the mountain. Peter's wanting to prolong this experience. Let it, let it last. Let's just live in this experience right here. And here's the problem, guys. So many followers want to set up camp and just stay on the mountain. So many followers want to live from mountaintop to mountaintop, Sunday service to Sunday service, revival to revival, prophetic service to prophetic service. And why those are great, that's why we weren't meant to live there. It's interesting to me that they said, hey, let's do this. Jesus said, no, Peter, come on, come on. You're being a little overdramatic. We're not building tabernacles up here on the mountain. Our work is not up here. And they head back down the mountain it's funny to me, the moment they get back down the valley, they're confronted with a desperate dad that needs a son delivered from demon possession. Jesus said, the mountain's great, but here's where the work is to be done. Here's where your purpose is. Here's what you were meant for. I didn't just save you so that you could show up out of obligation on a Sunday morning and every now and then on a Wednesday night. I saved you so that on Sunday you could get your marching orders. And then when you walk out those doors, go out there and be the light and salt to this world. Our mission field, guys, our harvest is not on the mountain. It's down there where the broken people are. Stand with me, Crossing.